Hello, Chris here with another installment of the Make It Podcast. And uh, what a day. Thursday night, I am recording this, sipping on what's left of my 19 Crimes red wine. And um, I want to take a little bit of time just to say thank you to everyone who has supported uh, this podcast uh, along the way. We have a lot of fun things in store for this year, and uh, we can't wait to share it with all the listeners and uh, all the supporters and everyone who has been with us across the globe uh, along the way. Uh, to all of our new listeners on Stitcher, thank you, thank you, thank you. Uh, hang with us. So much more to come uh, for sure. So, before we get to today's guest, I want to encourage everyone, of course, as always, to go to our website at www.bonsai.film and click on our resources link. And I really mean do it. Like you can stop the podcast right now if you wanted to. You could go to www.bonsai.film and then click on the resources link and you'll find that uh, there is a wonderful library of resources and uh, film related things and tools that you can use and it doesn't cost you anything folks so make sure you go again to www.bonsai.film and we'll thank you for it for sure all right now on to today's podcast guest on this episode we have a conversation with Cicely Hoffman Cicely Hoffman is an award-winning costume designer wardrobe stylist, image consultant, and fashion editor. She designs costumes for film and music videos, style wardrobe for editorial or commercial fashion brands, and consults with artists for general look, videos, tours, and promotional materials. Cicely has worked on and with numerous award-winning films, recording artists, sundry professionals, commercials, magazines, advertisements, and various broadcasts. Her formal training is in costume, uh, excuse me, costuming theatrical productions, and she has an extensive knowledge of the history of fashion, clothing, customs, and construction. And you'll hear a lot of that actually in the podcast today. And I should mention, I believe Cicely is for sure. Well, um, actually, I know she is our first uh, costume designer that we've ever had on the uh, podcast. So I'm really excited for this episode. So anyway, back to the bio. She holds two bachelor degrees from Oberlin College in theater and German studies with honors. She has vast experience with runway and theatrical shows and creating looks from rock to vintage, avant-garde to country, hot couture to period and everything in between. And guess what? She's also an embroiderer, a cat lady, and vintage enthusiast. So without further delay, I give you the first guest in Make It History to declare Chris, I'm not going to say fuck because my parents might listen. I give you costume designer Cicely Hoffman. You're listening to Make It, a podcast by Bonsai Creative that helps aspiring professionals in film get where they're going faster by dissecting the advice, knowledge, and insights professional creatives in the film industry. I'm your host, Chris Barkley. My name is Cicely Hoffman. I am a costume designer and a wardrobe stylist. You may have seen my work in the feature film Other Versions of You and in Daniela Mason's music video for Human, or I recently did a spot for Merck for Mothers called Reversal. I am currently working on personal styling clients and a few commercials and also working with Best Part Productions on an upcoming horror film. That is 
Fantastic. Sicily, Sicily, Sicily. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast and um, and having this conversation with us. I, you know, it's thank you for uh, having me. Yeah, of course. And um, it's so rare to have just a costume designer, wardrobe size to come on and and give us that perspective, that angle. Um, so um, there isn't anyone else that I would have want, wanted to have from that perspective first than, than you having worked oh. with you in the past and just uh, knowing uh, your personality. And, and, and we'll, we'll <laughs> dig in a little bit on, on what I mean by that uh, as we oh, go Lord. along. <laughs> But uh, <laughs> well, but thank I, you. I appreciate that. <laughs> you no, know, no problem. Uh, but but I kind of want to start at the beginning a, a little bit with you um, because costume design and wardrobe um, styling is so specific. Mm-hmm. It doesn't seem like something a young girl grows up and says, "I want to be that," <laughs> right? Because well, it's so, I, I so specific. So, so what I, did I you want to grow up to, to, um, to be? I started as an actor, actually. And I, I am from Nashville, Tennessee, and I went to Hume Fogg, uh, which is an accelerated magnet program and the oldest public school in Nashville, mm-hmm. Blue Nights. And <laughs> I, you have concentrations at Hume Fogg like you do in college, and I, I later did this in college as well. But my, uh, my concentration was in theater, and I started as an actor, but they have you do different facets of the theater. So you do uh, a semester where you do sound or you do lights or you do costumes. And I was always very interested in fashion. And I realized that if I were a costume designer, I could do theatrical work and also do fashion and design at the same time. Mm. And as I started looking at colleges and looking at concentrations and looking at where my career would go, the idea of being, frankly, a struggling actor, which is what happens to most people for the first part of their careers, if you go the academic route especially, I think, uh, that started to lose its appeal for me as uh, fashion and design became more of an appeal for me. And when I went to college, I took my first real costuming class. I had a wonderful professor at Oberlin named Joellen Cuthbertson who taught me how to use like an industrial sewing machine and how to study the history of fashion and how it relates to film and theater. And I went, this is my spot. These are my people. This is what I need to do. So that's what happened. So it wasn't really... Uh, any voice of self-doubt that that made you want to sort of switch passions um you just no, started no. to pursue this and found and felt like oh these are you know this this feels right right yes and i'm a very decisive person so when that feeling came along it was very apparent to me and i'm the kind of person who makes a decision and then makes steps towards making that decision a reality. So that's what I did. Love it. So, so going back, growing up when you, you said you wanted to be an actor, um, Mm -hmm. what was that moment for you? Um, were you in like a camp? Did your, did your mom or dad, you know, uh, enter you into something? Did you audition for something and get the part? Uh, did you, was there a TV show or movie you watched? What was it that really sparked that creative juice in you that, that made you want to do that more than anything else? I don't think there was one specific thing that happened. Um, I'm a bit of a ham and I enjoy making other people happy. And I realized that as an actor, you can get to do that and also get other people to feel things. And at the end of the day, costume design is very much about communication and communicating a mood and a feeling as well as a style to others. And when I was an actor, I ended up being in some situations where the costuming was really dreadful. Mm -hmm. And I think that probably was part of what turned it. Um, but there was not any like specific moment of, Oh, I'm going to be an actor. I just started, um, wanting to be on stage and do things on stage. And like I said, it sort of morphed into then into costume design after, after that. Yeah, because I can really see you you doing that. You, you know, um, I, I don't want to call your personality type uh, confrontational, but <laughs> I'm but, very direct. <laughs> but yeah, you, you know, you're, you're a direct person. 
Um, you're definitely not afraid. Um, and, I, and I know that for for some people, that's really intimidating. But but I think also that you, you like not just making people happy, but you kind of like seeing their reaction. You like you, mm-hmm. you like reactions. Um, and I'm curious. So you you were in high school. Uh, did you have a first of all? How many piercings do you have? And then, and then two, tell me the story about why you decided to get a, 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 a bar through your forearm. Um, well, that didn't happen until, uh, until college. I currently, how many do I have? Uh, one, two, <laughs> I currently have four, uh, which is not as many as it once was. Uh, the piercing that I had through my arm, I got it because I thought it was pretty, um, believe it or not. It was a surface surface piercing on my right, the upper part of my right wrist that mm-hmm. looked like a silver bracelet. Wow. And I thought it, I thought it was pretty. Um, I was kind of a goth kid as well. And, mm. uh, at the end of the day, I really thought it was pretty. It's actually the same reason I have my nose is pierced, uh, because I, I think that's pretty. Gotcha. So, but did you recognize or were you prepared for the reaction you'd get when you showed people that forearm piercing or uh, and no. was that performance for you or was it literally just hey this is pretty um I thought it was pretty and it's also it's definitely you know I'm a very autonomous person and I think part of it was definitely this is my body and I'm gonna do what I want to do with my body um I didn't think my parents would be thrilled but uh <laughs> needless to say they were not thrilled <laughs> and <laughs> Um, but at the end of the day, it was, you know, it was something that I wanted and, uh, that's, that's what I did. Boom. There you go. No, absolutely. I was, when I, um, when I think about it, I'm like, oh, she was David Blaine before David Blaine. But, um, and, and, and so my guess is that as a, as a goth girl, you, uh, uh, your music taste kind of followed is, is, oh, yes. Which yes, has changed now, it seems like. But but you, my guess is you liked My Chemical Romance and uh, the Adore oh, era no. of the Smashing Pumpkins. No, no, I was I was I was a little earlier than that. Not to not to give away my age. I was more of a Nine Inch Nails, Tom Waits, Tori Amos. Well, I know you love Tom Waits, but so you love Tori yes. as well. Yes, uh, I actually taught a class on Tori Amos in college. Are you serious? Yes. At Oberlin, you can, there's something called the experimental college. And if you can prove an expertise in any, anything from mm-hmm. hula hooping to Swahili to Tori Amos, you go before a committee. And if you can prove your expertise, you can teach a class on it and you can get two credits. So I did. Wow. So did you teach uh, Boys for Pele or did you teach, like, what, what album did you teach? Did you teach, like, the first one? I taught all of them up until Scarlet's Walk, and it actually coincided very well with the tour she was on at the time, because she played Cleveland, which is outside of Oberlin, and we got to go, my class and I got to go to the show and meet her and talk to her about the class. It was really awesome. <laughs> that's insane. That's insane. It was so, like highlight of my life level. No, awesome. that's, that yeah. is highlight of your life. Awesome. I, I remember being introduced to Tori Amos when... Oh God! It was maybe 1996 ish, and I just didn't even know who she was. Like I just I mm-hmm. wasn't introduced to her that in that way. Like I I vaguely knew, and there was a girl that I think I was dating at the time named Kristen, and Kristen would uh, turn on Tori Amos and she would lay on the ground in my bedroom on the floor on the carpet. <laughs> And she would say, come lay beside me. And I said, okay, Mm -hmm. I'll do that. And we would stare at the ceiling and listen to Tori Amos songs and and a lot of other music, by the way. But Tori was like the the big one. And then, and then after it was over, we would talk about, you know, what we heard both lyrically and and musically. It's very, it's, it's very open to interpretation. And Tori Amos was a very large influence on me during my high school and college years because she, Tori Amos is very much anchovies in a potato chip world. Mm-hmm. And so am I. Mm-hmm. And it was okay to be an anchovy in a potato chip world. And there was somebody out there who could explain feelings in ways that are to others, very confusing. Her, her music's not 
easy. No. And no. requires a lot of interpretation, which I actually really like. And I feel like Nine Inch Nails does as well. Tom Waits' later stuff does. His early classical jazz stuff doesn't as much. But that was always a major appeal of her to me. And, the, well, the flip side of that is my my other favorite artist of all time, which surprises people, is Lyle Lovett. Yeah. yeah that, I love Lyle Lovett. That, surprise, that does surprise me. Um, it does. But it, but. It, but it, <laughs> But with the storytelling, maybe maybe not, especially if you like Tom Waits mm-hmm. already. Yes. Um, Tori, in her own way, is more like Trent Reznor than like Lyle Lovett. Yes, um, very much so. And so maybe that explains your red hair a little bit. Everybody thinks that it's actually from Ariel. My lifelong ambition is to be Ariel. So <laughs> it started earlier than that. It didn't hurt. It's it certainly didn't push me in the other direction. <laughs> So what steps have you taken to become a mermaid? You know, I've looked into it. There's not a lot of research out there. Got it. Oh my gosh. That's um that's my sister Michelle's favorite movie of all time. It's the best. Time. Yeah, it's Little the Mermaid. Best. Little Mermaid changed lives. And it oh, was yeah. um it was the first it was the first it was when Disney started making movies the way they make movies now. Like that type I of agree. story. And yeah. so it's a historic um, movie in that regard, for, for sure. Uh, you, you talked about going to Oberlin in, in Ohio. Mm-hmm. And um, Oberlin is a really small place, and you're a really bold person. Why, why, did you, <laughs> why did you go to such a small school? This, this school has less than 3,000 students. It does. That's correct. I wanted to not stay close to home. Um, two of my four parents are were they're retired now, but they were college professors, and I wanted to step out of that. And I knew that I wanted to double major in German studies and in theater, and that I wanted to go to a liberal arts college. And Oberlin fit the bill. So let me dig in for the people listening a little bit here. You mentioned two of your four parents. Will you dig into that a little bit and explain what you mean by that? My parents are divorced and then remarried. So I have my my mom and my dad and then a stepfather and a stepmother. So I have four parents. And my my mother and my stepfather were both professors at Belmont University for many years. And so knowing that, you didn't feel pressure to go to Belmont? Belmont was my safety. Mm-hmm. Um, because with, you know, when you, there's definitely nepotism in, in any kind of academic circle, we were, we were fairly certain that I could get into Belmont and get a good education there, but I did not want to stay home, you know, kind of the want to spread your wings thing. I wanted to live somewhere different from anywhere I've ever lived. So now when I tell people about my life, there's that section where I lived in rural Ohio where it snows eight months out of the year. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So that was part of it. And it also, it fit my, my political ideology. Uh, Oberlin is also the first college that admitted both black students and women and Mm -hmm. uh, the history of Oberlin was part of my decision in going there. It was also a stop on the Underground Railroad. Um, so Oberlin has a long history of liberalism and political activism and social responsibility, and that was important to me. Yeah, it absolutely does, and I think that makes a lot more. It, it makes sense of what on the surface looks like a very you know interesting decision um, to to do that. Um, you also mentioned that you knew that you wanted to study, like like go into German studies. Why? I studied German in high school, and uh, this sounds really terrible, but I was good at it, and I knew that I could study both German and something else, and I wanted the something else to be theater, because I knew that I could test out of some of the lower levels of German. Um, I know that sounds terribly arrogant, but it also, at the time, seemed like a safer, smarter choice as far as being able to get a job when I got out of college, which (laughs) ended up not being the case in any way, shape or form. Mm -hmm. But that was kind of the motivation behind that. And I'm also interested in German theater. So that sort of made sense. And I actually got to take some classes on German theater, which were some of my favorite in college. How would you say German theater differs from, uh, Classical American theater. Harshness. 
Uh, explain that a little bit. Um, a lot I, know, of, I know the language is more harsh, uh, being, being I half don't German think it myself. Is. I, I, I personally don't think it is. I think German is very beautiful. I think Russian is kind of harsh, um, mm. and I think French sounds a little too flitty to be taken seriously. <laughs> and... <laughs> There's a lot of German theater, a lot of Brecht. Brecht is probably the German playwright most people are most familiar with. And mm-hmm. his his words are very sharp. His subject matter is very harsh. Uh, mother Courage and her children is extremely difficult to get through. Um, and one of my favorite German plays is Spring Awakening. Mm-hmm. And it's very real about uh, sexuality in young adults and was way ahead of its time, was banned in a lot of places because of that. And I think that German theater, because of the idea that it's an experience, and I'm, I mean like theater as a play in a, in a playhouse, not film, mm-hmm. that it's a communal experience. Brecht thought that you should be able to sit and eat and smoke cigars while you are enjoying the play. And so it's this experience that's not dictated by a fourth wall. And it's about welcoming people into another world in a way that I think American theater doesn't. And American theater is very much about spectacle in a good way. Something like, you know, Hamilton has this beautiful spectacle. And I realize that's modern. Most of the theater that I studied was, um, before the turn of the century, but German doesn't have that kind of bright, shiny, entertaining aspect to it. German theater is very much about a shared experience and about potentially learning something or experiencing something that you maybe would not have otherwise. Instead of walking out of an American show, like say West Side Story, where you walk out and go, man, that was great, you know, and you're snapping (laughs) your fingers to the when you're a jet song and that's kind of, that's kind of the end of the experience. I think when you see German theater, when you walk out of it, it stays with you for a while. Oh man. um, If I get the opportunity to go back to Germany uh, anytime soon in the next year or two, I will definitely try to check out some German theater. It's part of my German experience that I, that I've missed up to this point. Um, um, You go over there and you, experience right away like the castles and the food and things like oh, that yeah. and the culture. Yeah. So going a little bit deeper, I'd love to experience the theater. So thank you for for sharing that for sure. Um when you left Oberlin, you came back down. Was there a temptation to go to you came back down to Nashville? Mm-hmm. Uh, was there a temptation just to move directly to LA or New York? There was. I decided that's not what I wanted to do. And part of that is because I think it's important to mm, kind of cultivate the life you want in the place that you want to be. And mm-hmm. I think LA is, you know, LA is so big and so soft in a way. And New York is so small and harsh in a way that I, I really didn't want to do that. And when you say um, small, you mean like the, 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 just the field you're going into? Yes. Gotcha. Yes. And the just New York, although it's it's very dense, New York feels very small to me. Whenever I'm there, it just feels like this, you know, it's this little bitty island and you're in this little bitty community on top of a little bitty island. And mm-hmm. I, I don't care much for that. I also did not want to, having lived in the climate I had lived in for so long, I did not want to go somewhere else where it snowed a lot. <laughs> and yeah. I wanted to help cultivate the film scene in Nashville because mm-hmm. it was sort of starting to bubble up at that time. And part of me just honestly wanted to come home. I mean, Nashville is home to me. My family is here. I, I think I have a Southern disposition in a lot of ways mm-hmm. and wanted to be in an environment where I could thrive and also, you know, do art, do good in my own backyard. Gotcha. Yeah. And, and I think also just and I think this still kind of remains true, because I think when people want to put short films together, when they want to do features, when they want to do music videos, you're always on the list. And oh, that's, gosh, <laughs> that's a that's a benefit of being, you know, in Nashville and having sort of built a track record here. Um, so so when you came back down to Nashville, um, 
what was your first gig? Like, what did you, what was the first thing you worked on? The f- Gosh, let me think. The first feature that I worked on was this one in Waynesboro, Tennessee, of all places. And long story short, it was a disaster. <laughs> <laughs> um, they didn't have enough money. They didn't have enough housing for everybody. Uh, the assistant I had at the time and I had to like share literally a cabin on the set. And it was just, you know, I was sort of starstruck cause it was my first feature. Not because there weren't, it wasn't like a, a big deal as far as, you know, there weren't any big names attached to it or anything like that. But I was like, this is going to be great. You know, this is it. Here we go. And it was just a shit show. Um, <laughs> that was, that was my first feature. That was a long time ago. I think, um, one of the first shorts I did was the once mighty with, uh, with Maki Dap mm-hmm. and, that one, uh, Chad McLarnan bribed me with a light bright to make a Captain America suit from scratch in five days. Wow. And I did. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and we made, it's about uh, Captain America getting older and sort of hanging up his spurs and uh, sort of acquiescing to a normal life of, of family and a job. And I had to make a suit. Um, and that went very well. It was in the Nashville Film Festival, and we we did a short festival run with that. And I I think that's the first time that Maki and I worked together. Um, Chad and I had been friends before that, but I think that may have been the first time that we worked together as well. That or on a music video for an artist called Ray Herring. Mm. Uh, the three of us did a video for her uh, pretty early on as well. Awesome. And that sort of um, led to all the other work. I know you've done a ton of work with Maki and with Chad. And, yes. um, you know, everything's been, been really good. Um, I'm curious what, you know, there, there are times in these conversations where I ask about, um, advice you might give, but, um, specifically I'm curious in, in wardrobe design and, uh, or wardrobe styling and, and costume design. Um, I, I, I'm curious, do you feel like you need an agent or a manager to do that? So if so, someone's Not listening and they want to do this, should they go get, an agent pursue a manager, what should they do? Not necessarily. I think there, I have gotten, I do not personally have an agent or a manager. I have gotten gigs through agents or managers who are not uh, contracted to me. And that does work well for some people. And I think it depends on what kind of costume and wardrobe styling you want to do. If you want to do, I'm interested in film and theater and music videos. If you're interested in fashion, as in editorial fashion, uh, that kind of styling, it's more helpful to have an agent because they also are agents for models and photographers and things like that. So that's sort of a, a smaller niche area where you can have connections that are built into that relationship. Mm-hmm. And I think if you want to f- start as a filmmaking costumer, other than learning the history of fashion, because if you're called upon to do something that's historically based, you need to know what you're doing and knowing how to sew and how to construct clothes and things of that nature. The thing that really helped me was the 48 because. And and just to be clear, you talk about the 48 hour film festival. Yes. Mm -hmm. Because if you, especially if you're not really sure if this is what you want to do, it's a really good way to dip your toe in and see how a film is made even if it ends up only being a five minute film, how many pieces it takes, what it takes from you as a costume designer, or maybe you, you know, go in as a costume designer and decide you want to be a gaffer. Like that's swell too. The 48 is a really great incubator for that kind of thing. Um, it's also really fun. Yeah. The pressure's really on and there's a set of rules that's objective for everybody. Mm-hmm. And, um, it amazes me the range of output you see uh, in a 48. Uh, so when I go to those festivals and watch those films, you see um, films that really need a lot of help. And then you see, sure. master- and you see masterpieces and you're like, everybody had the same opportunity. This is pretty sure. amazing. And, and it is a way to quickly delineate between, you know, whether or not you should be doing this even at all. 
Uh, I know that I've had directors tell me that that's what 48s are really good for as well. Um, I totally agree with that. Yeah. One of one of my pieces I am most proud of is a 48 called Lime and Davenport because you do the entire thing in 48 hours. So you basically only have 24 of those hours to film. And we decided it makes sense within the story, but we decided that in every scene, every character would change their outfit. That film is about seven minutes long and there are about 80 costume changes. Holy cow. I didn't know that I could do that. And finding out that I could do that to this day, if I get pushed up against a wall on another project, I think, girl, one time you put all those outfits on some, on all these people in 24 hours, you can do this. At the, in retrospect, obviously it was, you know, a blessing and, and you figured a lot out about yourself. But at the time when you were told that, did you just ask for a rewrite? (laughs) No, I knew it was the best thing for the story. Okay. And I, I knew that at the end of, at the end of the day, filmmaking is about a collaborative telling of a story. That's the most important thing. And I knew that that was, that made the story better. I -hmm. knew that it was critical to the story it's about it's basically about a party where there's this button that this woman pushes and every time she pushes the button the party starts over and i knew that it was critical to show the audience in a way that that was happening as well as tell the audience that that was happening and that it would propel the story forward which you're at the mercy of the story and yes. i knew it was the best way to do that and it was the right thing to do and i i am a good crisis actor i am one of those people where if something bad happens and not that that was a bad thing. It, didn't, it was a good thing. But if something bad happens, I react very quickly. I react very well. And then I go home and cry for three days. <laughs> so when the challenge was presented to me of can we do it this way, and I knew it was the right thing to do, I'm just the kind of person who goes, all right, let's do it. Hit the mm. ground running. Let's, let's go. No, that and we had, we had to get very creative. I mean, there's one, there's one shot of a woman and she's, it was the last shot that we did. She's actually not wearing clothes. I am behind her squatting down and I've wrapped a blanket around her chest and I changed mm-hmm. her jewelry. So it looks like a strapless gown, but it's actually me holding a blanket <laughs> because we literally ran out of clothes. Wow. <laughs> and but I, we got it done. Got yeah, it done. Yeah. And it, it makes me think of... Um, this quote you have, you've been quoted as saying, you're cursed and blessed with eternal hope. Yes. Um, where did that come from? Why do you say cursed? I say cursed because I think sometimes hoping can be cruel. If, uh, if people have a false hope, that can be a very crushing thing when it goes away. Because you can, you know, you can hope for... You can hope for everything. You can, if you have a relative who is sick, you can hope for them to get better. And that's not always going to happen. And I think sometimes that hope can be cruel and can exacerbate grief. But I also think that if you do not hope for the best, the best often will not happen. Right. Yes, 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 yes. I'm all about the power of positivity and... The only way that you, the only thing in, a, in any given situation, the only thing that you can really control is how you react to it. Yes. And I choose hopefulness as much as possible. Sometimes I don't, but I try as much as possible to choose hopefulness. And most of the time it works out for the better. I love that. Thank you for, for going into that uh, for me. Um, you talked about like, time sensitive sort of work heavy jobs. And if you look at the music video human for Daniela Mason, Mm -hmm. um, that looked like that was really hard. (laughs) Was it as hard as it looked like it was? Cause, cause it's a bunch of people dressed as robots. Nope. Uh, and, and (laughs) the office design or the the artist dresses a robot and the the artists that the design of the room seemed really heavy with stuff in it. It was. And that's one thing I think is really important. You were talking about um, advice for people when they first start out, find your people, find your team. I 
knew on especially on that music video i knew this set design is going to be fine i don't even have to worry about it and granted that's not my lane how did you how did you know it because of the team that we had working on it when you trust your team you know as much as it's important to stay in your lane i think it's you're much more comfortable in your lane if you know the lanes next to you are handled and i knew the directing would be would be handled. The cinematography would be handled. The set design would be handled. And when you can lean on other people and know that they have a shared vision, they communicate with you well, everybody's on the same page, that was one that was actually one of the easiest music videos I've ever done. That is really interesting because because it has a look to it that makes you think. This took a lot, a lot of prep. So I was curious how you, how you prepared it for it. Pre-pro is so important. I can't stress that enough. You have to be on the same page uh, with the people who directly affect your department. As much as I said, you know, you got to stay in your own lane. I'm not going to tell somebody how to how to set design, but you have to, as a costume designer, I need to be on the same page as the actors. So I need to know what size you really are. I need to know <laughs> how tall you actually are. I need to know what your skin tone actually looks like when you are lit, you know, for, for a film or a video. I don't care what the numbers are mm-hmm. as long as they're correct. That's all I care about. Right. So I got to be on the same page with the actors because otherwise I'm going to bring a whole bunch of stuff that doesn't fit. And then what are we going to do? I have to be on the same page as the set designer so I know, okay, these are these are the palettes that you're going to use. These are the palettes that I'm going to use. Let's put these together. You have to be on the same page as the makeup artist so you know this is the look that we're going for so you don't show up on a rocker video and the makeup artist wants somebody to look like Marilyn Monroe. That's not going to work. Mm-hmm. And all of those things together have to be on the same page as the director. Yes. And all of that with the exception of a 48, all of that must always be on the table before you show up. And it makes life better for everybody involved. Yep. Thank you for that. That's, that is super solid advice for anyone looking to, to go into that. And I think it, it makes sense too, in terms of uh, when you watch something that looks complex, looks difficult, how you can make something with experience look, uh, something that looks difficult actually be easier in the, in the work of it when you're prepared in advance. So, um, yeah, I love, I love that feedback. You, you are a a lover of vintage clothing. I am. And and a lover of vintage everything. Did this develop, uh, through your work or have you always loved things that are just older and feel special and feel vintage? I've always loved vintage things. I think that my career has has made that um, worse, I guess, or better, depending on how <laughs> you look at it. I what I like about vintage stuff. I there are certain things about the vintage era that I dislike, such as the treatment of people of color and the treatment of LGBTQ people and the treatment of women and other societal things that sometimes vintage feel can have a connection to. I, I'm not into that part. However, I do like the fact that vintage clothing feels much more deliberate to me. Mm. And I like the idea that people wanted to express themselves in a different way than they do now and wanted to take the time to do things for themselves. I think that we we tend to not do that as much now. And I'm not talking about you need to go out in a three-piece suit with gloves and a hat and a coat <laughs> every day. I think that there's a way to do that with purpose and that you can give yourself some time and communicate what you want to communicate to the outside world by doing that. And there was a deliberateness in the way that people used to dress themselves there was also a care in the way that clothes used to be made that no longer exists with fast fashion and, you know, shitty retailers that we have now that, and I long for care in garment and I, I long for the creativity and the artistry in garment. But that said, Iggy Pop also taught me that not wearing a shirt can be as much as 
wearing a specific shirt. That is also a declaration. That is also him being who he is and showing his creativity in a way that doesn't rely on the medium that I use. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, th- I think it's it's very true. And I, I'm going to dig in on that a little bit more, too, and, and, and try to go a little deeper with you because I have some questions about about that. Because I know I know that you style uh, and create styles for for people. But uh, while we're talking about vintage, will you tell everyone who Betsy is and why <laughs> why Betsy even has a name? Which Betsy? Uh, I think your Bessie is your sewing machine. Oh, Bessie. I thought you <laughs> yeah. said Betsy. No, Betsy. Bessie. Sorry, Bessie. I was like, I don't know Betsy unless we're talking about the clothing designer, Betsy. Mm-mm. No, no, um, B-E-S-S-I-E. Yes, Bessie is my sewing machine. Bessie is a 1947 in-cabinet sewing machine that was my my grandmother's neighbor died, and I inherited Bessie. And... She is a dear old friend. <laughs> um, I personally think it's easier when I when I make things from vintage patterns or my I I make very few of my own designs and I don't I am not a clothing designer in the you know 12 looks down a runway sense of the word. So that's mm-hmm. that's not what I mean. But when I do design, I find that a vintage sewing machine is better. Um, it's, I mean, she is in a piece of furniture. She's freaking steel. Like she's, she's a monster (laughs) and it takes skill and care to be able to use a machine like that. And I think it works better on vintage patterns because it's designed for them. Mm -hmm. Uh, Mm -hmm. So we, yeah, we're old friends. And did, did, did she have the name, before she did not i named her i decided that it went with my uh my dress form's name is mabel i have a vintage (laughs) dress form and her name is mabel and mabel came from this old joke on the simpsons where they showed a switchboard operator and the switchboard operator is taking some calls and then she gets off her last call and she turns to her friend and she says so then i says to mabel i says (laughs) And I just thought it was hysterical. <laughs> the idea of, you know, Mabel at a switchboard just killed me. Right. So I named, I got the dress form uh, first um, and named her Mabel. And then when I got Bessie, I thought Bessie and Mabel. It just, for whatever reason, it just sounded right. It just so, went. It just, yeah. it just felt vintage probably. They just, they suit each other. Yes. And it's definitely a, you know, a vintage name. I wasn't going to name her, you know. Brittany, <laughs> you know. Uh, I um, I know that that you've kind of found this new niche. Um, well, I don't want to I don't want to contextualize it that way as if it's new. But you did find a niche for yourself in creating images for people, and I think that's really cool. So, how did you discover that was something that was really valuable and that was something that people were looking to do? I think it's one of those things that just came to me naturally. And it's, I'm a, I'd like to think I'm a very self-aware person and Mm -hmm. I have, I have always been this person. You know, I never, I never had an identity crisis. I never went through, you know, what does it all mean? You know, that, that never happened to me. And Mm. I realized pretty young that there were things that I could do creatively and to tell stories, which is really what, at the end of the day, it all comes down to the telling of the story and Mm -hmm. how, how do you tell the story? I realized that I could do that in a way that other people couldn't. And in the same way that I am utter shit at other things, I can't play a musical instrument to save my life. If, if the entire human race hinged on my ability to play a song on an instrument, we're all screwed. I just, it's, I can't do it. I can't tell the story that way, but I can translate what people are trying to say in the, into the way that they look and into a tableau that is a presentation of the story. And certain other people can't do that. And if you can do something that other people cannot do, that is a marketable skill. 
That's exactly right. Um, I'm curious. Well, two things. One, that's the fact that you can't play any music, but you love music so much doesn't surprise me now i can I dance right, there. right right i can't play it but i can dance uh, again supports my theory of why you married a musician uh <laughs> because now <laughs> now someone can play the music and you can dance to it and and we admire the things we can't do when someone else can do it so i think that's sure that's sure. pretty cool and um the second thing I'm I'm curious, you talked about that tableau, you talked about telling that story, putting that story, that personal story for you out into the world. And I think it's such an, um, it can be a really nuanced thing. So I'm curious, in your opinion, what makes for an image versus just wearing clothes? The story that you're telling. Are you translating what you are trying to say or are you just existing? It's, it's the, it's the same, it's the eternal struggle of, are you living or are you existing? Are you saying what you have to say or not? I think we're all, you know, if there is a grand purpose to all of this, it is that we are, we are all here to say what we have to say in the way that we are able to say it best and to learn from other people who are doing the same thing. So are you doing that or are you not doing that? So, for example, if, if I'm a if I'm a female and um, I, I just every day I wake up, I put on a pair of jeans, flats and let's just say, um, you know, just uh, any, you know, any type of sort of form fitting blouse. And then I put my hair up in a, you know, in a ponytail and I leave for the day. How would you take an outfit like that and turn it into an image for that person? That can be an image because of where it comes from. I think we a lot of what I'm interested in is also the history of garments and the story that the garment itself tells. So let's take this woman. Maybe she got those blue jeans at an estate sale with her mother. And that morning they had brunch together and they had a really lovely time and they were able to share something that they had not been able to share as mother and daughter. Maybe the blouse is her favorite color. And she feels really confident that the blouse brings out her eyes. Mm. Maybe the flats remind her of a music festival she went to where she had a transcendental experience seeing Ziggy Marley make an entire concert turn around to look at a rainbow, mm. which actually happened to me when I was 17. And it was amazing. <laughs> which, 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 uh, which concert? Uh, like it was Ziggy Marley. What, what, what festival? He was I mean, down, he was downtown here, here in Nashville. He was downtown at the riverfront oh, and wow. he made an entire crowd turn around to look at a, at a rainbow because none of us could see it. Cause we were all looking at him. You're right. That's amazing. And you Sorry, know, there's, to, yeah, continue. It was great. There's, a, there's always a story there. And when you can combine the pieces of the story, you can create an image. And I'm not saying that, you know, if you're in your day-to-day life and you're just going to work, you don't have to necessarily have an image in that. But when you're in a film and that's a character, I have conversations with actors about that. Think about where these shoes came from. Think about where these jeans came from. It's, you know, the building of a character is not just an actor. The idea that an actor is the only one who's responsible for a character, I find very arrogant and off-putting, and I dislike working with actors who work that way. Uh, Let me help you build it. And that's part of the collaborative storytelling that we were talking about earlier of that's how you make an image, that's how you tell a story. Right, right. And, and I'm fascinated by it, frankly, Cicely, because to me, building someone's image through clothes or telling a story through clothes feels like branding to me, which is something that, mm-hmm. that Bonsai does. And sure, um, sure. And it and it feels like a way to build audience um, and and have people recognize you the second you walk in the room just based on the hat you're wearing. Absolutely, uh, because Look at that's Johnny your hat, man in black. Right. Exactly. Yeah, that's exactly why it's fascinating to me. Uh, you mentioned a few a few moments ago learning from others and being inspired by others. Who, who are the costume designers or creatives that have inspired you? Uh, my, probably my favorite costume designer um, of all time is Aiko Ishioka. Um, she did very strange costumes that I 
absolutely adore. She did uh, Bram Stoker's Dracula. She did this really dreadful film called The Cell with Jennifer Lopez in it that is worth watching uh, for the costumes. She was also mm-hmm. a visual artist. Uh, oh, I love that movie. It's so it's so beautiful. Um, it needed a better editor, and the storyline is is pretty shaky, but the the visuals of it are are stunning. And um, among my favorite, um, my favorite costume de- or uh, sorry, clothing designer of all time is Alexander McQueen. Um, for similar reasons, I I like people who are fearless. Um, and you know there are there are the really great ones who are working now. Like Colleen Atwood is amazing. Um, probably my the the funniest one to me. I'm pretty sure James Atchison is the one who said this. He said that. Uh, Costume designers are cut from the same cloth as hookers and doctors because we have the ability to meet someone and say, hello, could you please take off your clothes? <laughs> Which <laughs> I think is hysterical. Um, That's great. <laughs> and the, the be-all, end-all uh, costume designer for me is Edith Head. Um, she did all of, well, most of Alfred Hitchcock's work and... She dressed Grace Kelly in my favorite dress of all time, which is in Rear Window. Uh, she was just the best, the best mm-hmm. of the best of the best. It's a great list. So if you had someone who was about a month out from taking their first gig as a costume designer, um, what would be the first three things you would teach them if you had to teach them how to get competent for that gig? I would, I would teach them to sew um, so they can understand uh, the landscape of the human body. Uh, I, that's, that's really important and teach them about uh, learning to sew also teaches you about proportion and the way that fabrics feel. Um, I'm very interested in the way that fabrics feel on an actor as well as how they look in different lights or how they, how they cut or how they sew or how you, you have to use different stitches on different types of fabric or they will snag, for example. Um, that would probably be the first thing I would have them research the history of fashion and the history of clothing and the way that clothes have been used both for, you know, show purpose utilitarian purpose, um, just depending on, depending on whatever piece it was that they were, that they were going to work on. Um, cause if they're going to say that their first gig is a, you know, Salem witch trial, they need to know what those people looked like. Right. Right. <laughs> you know, you know, you don't want them rolling up in a nudie suit. Like that's not going to work. Um, <laughs> And I mean, I would, I would really try to get somebody on a set, like see, see how a set works, see how the timing of set works, see how you have to interact with, like we were talking about earlier, where your lane is in relation to a set designer, a makeup artist, uh, things of that nature, how the timing of this is when the actor comes in. This is when we do this part. This is when we do the next 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 part. This is when we actually shoot. Right. I, th- I think there's a lot of misconception about filmmaking, about how, how much of it is actually shooting and how much of it is, is that not only just pre-pro, I mean, prep day of this is, you know, this is what we're meant to shoot today. These are all the things that lead up to us actually getting to the point where somebody says action. Yes. So they can get comfortable with that, that collaboration and, and what that feels like. Yeah, absolutely. And then is there, is there anything else you would teach in that 30 days? Um, sewing, getting them on set. Yep. Sewing, getting them on set history and just, you know, watch, look, watch movies. You know, that's, Get off Facebook and watch some movies. Watch watch some. <laughs> so great easier said movies. than done, Cicely. Calm down. <laughs> sure, sure it is, but you know it's. You can always learn. You can always watch even even the crappiest movie you've ever seen. You can learn something, mm-hmm. even if it's what not to do. Yeah, and it goes back to that history piece. Just knowing your history. Uh, yeah. Uh, being able to, wa- I had a great conversation with. Uh, 
uh, Trey McLaren and Chad oh, and Sandrine and, and Maki, just about old movies and, yeah. um, and old ways to block things and old ways sure. to, to shoot things. And, um, it, it or even just, like the way that they framed a shot, learn how frame, how framing works. Look at, there's a, there's a beautiful scene in, um, it's a wonderful life where Donna oh, Reed's man. character is on the phone mm-hmm. and Jimmy Stewart holds her shoulders and he says something like, I don't want any plastics. I don't want to be stuck in this little town. And it's when he's figuring out that it, all of his dreams of being able to get out of this teeny little town that they live in are, are not going to happen. Mm-hmm. And he's going to, he's going to stay there, but he also is that he's in love with Donna Reed's character. Right. They don't they, frame shots like that anymore. Yeah. The, it, the, the way that was the way that, that is, looks yeah. mm-hmm. is totally different from the way that it's done now. And I think it's important to know that it's important to know, I, you know, how does a camera work? I've had, I've had directors be shocked, shocked when they tell me we're going to shoot something. And I say, are you shooting on a red or in 4k? Mm-hmm. And they look at me like, how do you know that? Like, why, <laughs> why would you ask that question? And the reason I ask that question is if you shoot in above 4k or use a red, no fabric will more. So I need to know because that changes the pattern options that I have. If you're going to shoot on film, I need to watch out for moray. So there's certain patterns that are out the door. And explain moray. Moray is when, have you ever seen like a newscaster who has on a pattern that's very tight, like the, the pieces or the lines of the pattern are very, very close together. Mm-hmm. And it's sort of the camera can't catch up with the pattern. So it sort of looks fuzzy or like a rainbow. Ah, got it. And it's super distracting. And that's not, you know, that, that's not the kind of thing that you want to happen. It's, it's a mistake. Like it's, and it's to be avoided because it draws attention to the fact that, oh, that's an actor wearing a costume and it doesn't suit the medium that you're shooting in basically. Perfect. Thank you for that. Um, sure. And, and you know, It's a Wonderful Life is a movie I watch every year at Christmas time. And, as one does. Right. And um, as one does. And uh, <laughs> it, it gets so many things right uh, in story. But I have a fun game I like to play, which is uh, you can't do that today. And, nope. <laughs> <laughs> and, and it's not just about how it's shot. It's just like how many story elements can you count? Maybe you have a shot of tequila every time you do it. I don't know. But oh, um, dead. don't do that. Yeah. Like all the little things that you just couldn't say or do at all um, today in a movie because culture has changed so much. That's half the fun of going to watch an, an older movie. It's just sure. What was totally acceptable and OK then versus today. So, um, Cicely, you've been so awesome uh, to join me on this call and, and oh, this thank conversation. You. And, um, and generous with your time. I only have a, a, a few more questions. Um, you know, we lost a, a, a mutual friend this year, Brittany Belland, and yes. you worked with her a lot. I was curious if you, do you have any favorite Brittany stories or anything you can mention? Uh, you know, we're all very much still struggling, um, with that because of, Brittany's kindness and brilliance and gung ho-ness for lack of a better term, Brit- Brittany was all in. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I, I have said many times, uh, that the, the world is a darker place for all who remain. But I think probably my, my favorite thing about Brittany was that I dressed her before I ever met her. Um, the first feature that Maki Daff and I did together was a film called The Many Monsters of Sadness. Mm-hmm. And they shot it in Ohio. And I was on another project at the time, and I could not actually be on set. And it, we had a pretty low budget, and I'm, I'm not certain that they could have uh, supported me there anyway. So we did, um, uh, we did it remotely, which I've done on several projects, and I've gotten a, a pretty good reputation for being able to do that as well. But... I dressed Brittany for an entire film before I actually met her <laughs> and, wow, wow. and knew, um, you know, and communicated with her on the phone and via text and emails and pictures and stuff like that. But 
we were never actually in the flesh together until after we had made a movie. I, I met her for the first time when the movie premiered at the Nashville Film Festival. And it was just, she, she rolled with it so well. You know, it, it, she was just Brittany. And the second that I met her, she was that bright, shining light that we all came, who we all came to know and love. And the Mm -hmm. fact that she could roll with that and then meet me. And it, it was like, no, this is a real relationship. We are, we are colleagues, we are friends. And it was immediate. And that's, she's probably the only person that'll ever, that'll ever happen with. So that's, that's a good one. Um, that, and my, my other favorite Brittany story would be when we shot, Parts, uh, the parts of other versions of you that are in Iceland, um, my flight was canceled. And I had Brittany's, we, because there was so much cost, costuming takes up a lot of space mm-hmm. in, you know, in a way that, say, the makeup artist just needed a bag and I needed, you know, seven. <laughs> so, right, right. Um, some of the bags, like some of them went with Maki, some of them went with our producer, Ryan Hartsock. Some of them went with, you know, some of the other crew members who, who maybe weren't checking a bag or weren't checking two because I had seven, you know, plus my, my personal effects. And the bag that I checked that made it a day later had her coat in it, mm. which is why in none of the, none of the scenes in Iceland does Brittany have a coat. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I didn't know that. <laughs> because we, the shots that we did the first day in Iceland when I wasn't there, we had to, con- because of the nature of the story of they've just been dropped off in a new universe, she doesn't have any money. She can't go buy a coat. We can't just introduce a coat now that we've shot all this other stuff. We've already established it. So poor Brittany did not have a coat. <laughs> right. And, you know, we thought about that with, with Chris's outfit, Digsy. Um, his outfit has a lot of layers and we did that on purpose because we knew, you know, if he's going into different universes, what if he, sh- what if he shows up in a beach town? What if he shows up in Antarctica? What if he shows up in Iceland? You know? So he had a long sleeve shirt and a vest and a sweater and poor Brittany was just in a dress. <laughs> and the, we rolled with it, man. You got to just, yeah, you got to roll with it, and, and, and she's a tiny little person, and so I yes, imagine she was freezing. Teeny little thing, and that's why in a lot of the shots, um, Chris will take off his sweater and give it to her, and I love that that love between that brother sister relationship between Digsy and Daphne that's a, that became a, a physical manifestation of helping to tell the story of how much love they had for each other as brother and sister. Oh, that's all because, because of a mistake. Wow. That's, that's incredible that, that that, when you put it all together that way, it, it, that's really remarkable. And, um, yeah, thank you for sharing that. I, you know, Brittany was, um, all those things and more that you said. And the interesting thing about her to me is that she would be genuinely surprised uh, about, people's reaction to her performance and we would say oh hey you stole that you know you stole that right like, yeah you th- that scene was all you like you you're you're really really good and really, really uh, good. she she would um she'd be genuinely surprised by that and i'd be like how is that possible didn't you see it too so <laughs> so she she just had that level of, of humility but uh absolutely to to uh to bring bring us back up a notch. Uh, I have one last question for you. You are a notorious cat lady. Why cats? And why do you hate dogs so much? <laughs> oh, I don't hate dogs. That's not true. Oh no, no, no! I don't hate dogs. Um, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. But you, but you, you I, are a cat lady. I am definitely a cat lady. I, I am a lifelong lover of cats. We always had cats when I was growing up as a kid. Uh, both at my my mom and my stepdad's and my, my dad and my stepmom's house. The, we all love cats and we, we never had a dog. Um, and part of it is, you know, with, with the filmmaking lifestyle, you don't have a consistent schedule. Um, I literally don't have a consistent enough schedule to come home and let a dog out. Um, uh, got it. I do love other people's dogs, but <laughs> a cat, you can leave 
you know, you can leave a cat with a full bowl and a clean pan for two days and they're fine. Um, yes. So they've just always been a part of my life. Um, we, we have a running joke that I am the, uh, I am the cat that crawls around in the filing cabinet of Mocky Dapp's brain. <laughs> It's just, it's, I love them and they've always just been a part of my life. That's I have two of them next to me right now, Patty Mayonnaise and Merci. <laughs> <laughs> there what, are actually. What are the uh, name of your, what is it, what is it, what is it, what's the name of your cats again? <laughs> their cats are uh, Merci, like French for thank you. Mm-hmm. And Patty Mayonnaise. <laughs> which was a cartoon character from a show called Doug when, uh, when we were kids. And uh, if you look very closely in Gwyneth's apartment in other versions of you, there are p- painted portraits mm-hmm. of Merci and Patty. Oh my God. In the background, in the set design. <laughs> <laughs> so there's no Easter egg for everybody. That's, that's who the cats are. They are, uh, Patty Mayonnaise and Merci. Okay, I missed it. I'm going to go back and check that You'll out. You'll have for to go sure. back and look. They're in the background at, at Gwyneth's apartment. Um, Mercy is dressed like a French poet, and Patty is sort of dressed like a, a courtesan. <laughs> that's, a, that's, that's incredible. That's what makes you a cat lady, that you dress your pets up <laughs> and give them names like that, which is great. And, um, and you're also great. So, uh, Cicely, oh, thank you. I think you're great. I <laughs> uh, appreciate that. Thank you. Thank you so much for, for taking the time to do this. This was so much fun. I learned a thousand things and I hope everyone listened oh, to as well. So, um, I'm happy to be of service. So Cicely, tell everybody where they can find you on the internet and on social media. Uh, they can find me at CicelyHoffman.com. It's C-I-C-I-L-E-Y-H-O-F-F-M-A-N, CicelyHoffman.com. And I am Cicely Hoffman on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and all of the things. <laughs> That's perfect. And uh, thank you for having consistency across social media. You'd be surprised. It's very how, important. Yeah. For many your people, Many people don't do it. Don't get it. It's don't very, understand. You got it. it. You have to do that. It's very important. All right. Perfect. Yeah. So we might do a round two. We'll, we'll see what happens. But um, in the meantime, okay. <laughs> uh, thank you. Take care. Good luck with everything now that you need it. And um, you as well. Thank and, you. And let's stay in touch. Okay. We'll talk soon. All right, Cicely, be good. You too. Bye. 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 You've been listening to the Make It Podcast. To find out more information on this week's creative, including links to their projects and social media feeds, please visit our website at www.bonsai.film forward slash make it. If you haven't already, you can join our podcast community on Apple Podcasts or the podcast app of your choice by searching for Make It bonsai creative if you do that the show will pop right up you can also follow us on instagram and twitter at underscore bonsai creative and on facebook by searching for bonsai creative and of course if you're looking to take a big step toward your filmmaking success go to www.bonsai.film and click on show me how to schedule a free discovery meeting and needs assessment you have everything to gain Until next time, be better, be creative, be engaged, and thank you for listening.